They have stumbled over stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am lying in Zion, a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame.
And this might not be the first thing that springs to our mind, but it is a question for us too. Can God really be trusted to keep his promises? How can we be sure that we are safe in his love? So Paul spends this whole section in Romans, chapters 9 through to 11, dealing with the question of Israel. Now, these are some really hard chapters. There are some really hard things in them. But these chapters aren't just a dry theological treatise. They are full of riches. We're going to see four riches that chapter 9 gives us this morning. It gives us a longing for the lost, gives us gratitude for God's mercy, humility before our Creator, and confidence in our sovereign God. And as we see these things, through it all, we'll answer the question, can we trust God to keep His promises? The answer is yes, because salvation depends entirely on God's choice to show mercy. And that leaves us with more confidence, not less. Alright, let's dive into chapter 9 together. First, we see a longing for the lost. We've already seen Paul wear his heart on his sleeve in Romans. His longing to be with the Romans, his confidence in the gospel, even his own struggle with temptation and sin. Paul's unusual in the ancient world for letting us in on his emotions. But none of those come close to verses 1 and 2 here. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul wants us to see how deeply he feels this. He tells us three times, I'm speaking the truth, I'm not lying, my conscience confirms it. What? That he is filled with great sorrow and unceasing anguish. That's what Paul's feeling. Why? Look in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul's anguish is because his brothers, his fellow Jews, are cut off from Christ. They've rejected Jesus. And so they don't know the invincible love of God that Paul talked about in chapter 8. They don't have that sure hope of glory, the confidence of adoption as God's sons. They don't have God for them in Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We read that last week. But Paul almost wishes that he could be separated from Christ so that his fellow Jews might be joined to Jesus in faith. He longs that they too may know God's mercy in Jesus. Ultimately, this is a glimpse of the love that Jesus showed for us, willingly bearing God's wrath, cut off from God's people, so that God's people could be saved. Paul cares for his fellow Jews that much. And this is actually a challenge to us. We should be challenged by these words. Around us, right now, here in South Toowoomba, are thousands of people who don't trust in Jesus. Thousands of people who are facing God's eternal judgment for their sins. At this moment, their ultimate destiny is hell, facing God's judgment forever. These people are around us. They're our neighbours, our co-workers, our friends, our family. They serve us at the checkout. They work out with us in the gym. They pick their kids up at the same time that we do. Do we actually care about them like this? Does it grieve us that they don't trust in Jesus? 
Do we long for them to know Him? Are we praying for them with urgency, looking for opportunities to share Jesus? Do we care? I'm not saying this this morning to guilt you. Maybe you do care, but you don't know where to start with sharing your faith. That's okay. But it starts here. It starts with looking around and caring about those around us who don't yet know Jesus. It starts with praying for them because they desperately need God's mercy. And maybe being unable to give an answer for the hope that you have in Jesus. And if you can't do that yet, maybe ask your growth group or an elder or myself or what for help. We'd love to talk you through it. But as a church family, let's start here, seeing and caring and praying for the eternal destiny of the people who are around us. Paul's grief here is all the more because his fellow Jews have every advantage when it comes to putting their faith in Christ. They have a head start. Look in verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the fleshes of Christ, the God of all blessed forever. Everything God did in their history was meant to point them to Jesus. He, Jesus even came from their own race. If anyone had the fewest obstacles for accepting Jesus, it was the Jews. But they rejected him. They were cut off from him. Which leads us to the next of the riches that Paul has for us here. Gratitude for mercy. You see, God's promises haven't failed. They've actually all been about, always been about mercy. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. Paul's answer is that belonging to God's people was actually never a matter of race or physical descent. Just because you're born into Israel, descended from Abraham, doesn't mean you're a part of God's people. It's not about race, it's about promise. Now, throughout chapters 9 to 11, Paul uses a stack of examples from the Jews' own Old Testament scriptures to prove his promise. We won't have time to dig into them all in detail. If you want to understand them better, maybe, maybe go back and read the original Old Testament passages during the week. But Paul's first example is Isaac and Ishmael. God promised Abraham and Sarah's son, he promised them blessing and that he'd make them a great nation. But Ishmael wasn't included in the promise. Even though he was Abraham's physical son through Hagar. But the promise was through Isaac. Why? Because it's not about who your physical father is, it's about God's merciful promise. Paul moves on to example two, Jacob and Esau, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. 
See, Jacob and Esau were twins. They had the same dad. They were in the womb at the same time. And yet before they were born, before they'd done anything to earn good or bad, God chose Jacob to receive his promise. Now, the language of verse 13 is very confronting to us. But we have to realise that God's not talking about hate the way that we talk about hate. This is a Jewish idiom, a turn of phrase. It means to choose and to prefer one over the other. And so when Jesus says to us in Luke 14, 26, that if anyone wants to follow him, they must hate their family, he doesn't mean that we should despise our family and treat them badly. He just means that we need to love Jesus more, to choose and follow Jesus, even if that means rejection from our family. So why did God choose Jacob over Israel? We saw it there in verse 11 so that it wouldn't be by works, but by God's choice. By God's choice to show mercy. By God's call on someone's life. Well, but this raises some difficult questions for us, doesn't it? How can God choose some and not choose others? How is that fair? Paul's way ahead of us, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul's answer is that it is God's prerogative to show mercy, not ours. He quotes from Exodus, after the people rebelled against God, the God who rescued them from Egypt by building and worshipping this golden calf, and even though the people deserve God's judgment, there at the foot of the mountain, he shows mercy. It is God's prerogative to show mercy to those who deserve judgment. You see, that is what mercy is. It is not receiving the judgment that we deserve for our sins. It is God choosing to extend forgiveness and give grace instead of the punishment that we deserve. We ask if that's unjust, but Paul shows us that's actually the wrong question. You see, once we've now moved into the realm of mercy, by definition we have moved away from talking about strict justice. Justice would be punishment for our sin. Justice would be Israel destroyed at the base of the mountain for their rebellion against God. Justice would be all of us receiving eternal punishment for our sin. But it's amazing that God shows mercy at all. Mercy is generous. Mercy is undeserved. God has no obligation to show mercy. It is simply his prerogative. The amazing thing is that actually God shows mercy to anyone at all. Now we've seen already in Romans 3 how God can show mercy without being unjust. Jesus died on the cross in our place to take the wrath that we rightfully deserve. That's how God can show us mercy without compromising his justice. But that's the thing. Mercy is a totally undeserved <coughs> Olivia reminded my oldest, Olivia reminded me the other day of a time when she was five and we showed her grace. The rule was that if you didn't eat all your dinner, you didn't get to sleep with your soft toy. One night, she didn't eat all her dinner, she knew what the consequence was, 
But we said, we are showing you grace. You can sleep with Teddy tonight. It still sticks in our mind. I don't know. But imagine the next night the same thing happened and she said, all right, Dad, I'll have my grace now. Thank you very much. That's not how grace works. It's not an obligation. It's a gift. Imagine if her sister said, hey, she gets grace. We should too. You owe us grace. That's not how grace works either. Mercy and grace is a free gift. There is no obligation for it. That is what makes it grace. God is free to show grace to whoever he wills. It is simply a gift. All this is so that we see that our salvation doesn't depend at all on us. It is not something we earn. We don't choose God. God chooses us. And that's actually what we've seen all the way through Romans so far, right? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. It's not about what we do. It is about simply receiving God's free gift of grace through Jesus, through faith in Him. And our response to this is gratitude. This gift is something we could never earn. This is entirely God's kindness. So let's respond in thanks. Let's thank him for his generosity to us. Let's praise him for his kindness. Let's remember every single day that this is entirely God's mercy. Let's thank him. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy to us. Which brings us to the next of our riches, humility before our creator. See, this raises another question. What about those who don't receive mercy? Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. Well, we're back in the Exodus now, this time with Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt. The one who refused to let people go time and time again. Why? It was also that through through God's dramatic, powerful rescue of his people, his power to save his people might be on display to all the nations. It's so that God's name as the loving, promise-keeping, people-rescuing, enemy-defeating God of Israel might be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul says that it's God's prerogative to show mercy to some and to harden others. Now, Pharaoh was still responsible for his actions. In fact, Exodus doesn't only say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it also says that Pharaoh hardened his own. Like in Romans 1, God gave Pharaoh over to his rebellion against God, so that through his rebellion, God could show his power. But then isn't it unfair for God to show mercy to some and to judge others? Again, Paul anticipates our question, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul responds by dishing out a little humility. Verse 20. But who is the one man to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out the same way 
one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? See, it is okay for us to wrestle with these questions, to wonder. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's not think that we have a better grasp of justice and mercy than God does. We need to remember our place. We are his creatures. He is our creator. He can do what he wants. Now, just imagine for a moment that you've got a beautiful veggie garden at home. You work really hard on it, it makes beautiful veggies and herbs for your family, it's beautiful. And then one day you decide you've had enough of the veggie garden, you want to succulent. You pull everything up and you start planting in succulents. And one of your neighbours walks past, what are you doing? You can't do that. Why did you ruin the veggie garden? What would you say? You'd say, no, this is mine. I made the garden. I get to decide what happens with it. Not you. God made us. We belong to him. He can do with us as he chooses. As hard as this is for us to hear, it is actually good for us to be humbled. To be reminded that we are creatures and he is creator. That he is God and we are us. Why would we expect God to be easily understood? His ways are beyond our ways. His thoughts are beyond our thoughts. He owes us no explanation. If we could easily understand God, then we would be God, not Him. And why should we expect God to conform to our standards of justice or mercy? He is the one who is perfectly just, who shows mercy and grace beyond what we could imagine. Yes, we can ask our questions, and we should. But we have no right to challenge him or to blame him. He is God and we are not. We need to accept what he has revealed, to accept that he actually does know better than us. We need a good dose of humility before him. But that humility is actually what brings us to the last now, which is confidence in our sovereignty. Being humbled before our Creator actually shows God's mercy to us all the clearer. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory and the vessels of mercy, which He has prepared before Him for glory? God's righteous wrath and judgment against those who reject his mercy demonstrates his power. It shows his power to us in both judgment and salvation. Now notice a couple of things here. Notice that God endures those who reject him with patience. By rights, God could judge instantly. He could have wiped Adam and Eve out the moment they fell. He could have wiped out Israel at the foot of the mountain. But he doesn't. He bears patiently with those who reject him. But he doesn't, so that those who trust in Jesus can marvel all the more at his glory, at both his power in judgment and in his mercy to us. 
Notice also there's a difference here between how God works in the lives of those who reject him and those who receive his mercy. He takes an active role in one, preparing them for glory, and a passive role in the other, those who are prepared for destruction. You see, for those who reject God, God hands them over to their sin. We saw that in Romans 1. Because of our sinful hearts, none of us, under our own power, will seek or choose God. And so, for those objects of wrath, God leaves them to their rebellion, and judgment is a fitting punishment for their sin. But for those who he shows mercy to, he takes an active role. Because of our sin, we could never see the glory of the Son. We could never choose him on our own. And so he intervenes in our lives, giving us faith in Jesus by his Holy Spirit, calling us through the gospel, causing us to respond in faith, acting in us to show us mercy. God chooses both. But his choosing is asymmetrical. Keller quotes a great illustration from James Kennedy Mathis. Imagine that I've got five mates who have decided to roll a bank. And I plead with them not to do it. I explain the risks and the consequences, but they decide to go anywhere. And as the five of them are on their way out the door, I choose one, I crash tackle him, and I pin him down on the ground. The others, they leave without him, they rob the pain. They shoot a guard, and they get captured. They are responsible for their actions, not me. They get sentenced to prison as they deserve, but the guy I pin down doesn't. He doesn't commit the crime, he's free. Not because of his choice, but because I intervene. Like that, judgment is the right response to our sin. It is what we deserve. But grace is entirely a word of God's mercy. He tackles us on our way to hell. He is the one who saves, not us. Salvation depends entirely on him. At the end of the chapter, Paul quotes a few more Old Testament passages to show us how God's calling and mercy isn't just for the Jews, it's actually for the Gentiles too. And this isn't God breaking his promises, this is actually what he promised all along. He has always been in the business of saving people who are outside and deserve his judgment. Salvation has always depended on God showing mercy to those he's chosen. Now this is hard stuff. These are challenging words in a difficult chapter. And Christians wrestle with how to understand this. For some of you, this will raise a lot of hard questions. And if that's you, if you want to dig into this more, uh, I've printed a few copies of an article by Tim Keller that I think explains this well. If you'd like to take one to read more about this, they're on the table before you. All right? Sorry for the size of the font. I borrowed it from someone else. And I do want to say, make sure you come back next week, because next week we're going to see a different camera angle on the same thing. This is all hard, but actually it should lead us to real confidence in our sovereign God. See, rather than undermine our trust in God, this is actually meant to strengthen it. You see, if our salvation depended on us, 
If it was up to how good we are, how well we keep the rules, even our choice of God, then we could never be sure. Are we good enough? Will we stay good? But if salvation depends entirely on God showing mercy to those who he's chosen, then we can be confident. Confident because God doesn't change his mind. Confident because he always start, finishes what he starts. Confident that if there's nothing that we need to deserve, then there's nothing we can do to undeserve. Because of our salvation rests in God's choice, we can rest in and rejoice in his mercy, confident that nothing can separate us from God's life. But that leaves one last question for us. How can you know if you've been chosen? The answer is simple. Don't look at anything in yourself. Don't look at your faith. Don't look at your good deeds. Don't look at your love for God. All those things will waver and change. Simply look to Jesus. His promise that if we have faith in Him, we are reconciled to God and we have peace with God. His promise of righteousness is a free gift to be received by faith. That's what Paul points us to in the last part of chapter 9. We're going to look at that more in next week, but for now, let's just have a little peek ahead. See, we don't have to try and second guess whether God has chosen us. We simply need to trust in Jesus. And all those who trust in Jesus will never be put to shame. Verse 33. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of grace, and whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. Can we be sure that we can trust God? <laughs> yes, 100% yes. He has not been unfaithful to his promises. Salvation has always been by his mercy to those who he's chosen. This doesn't undermine our confidence. It actually establishes it. Because if we look to Jesus, we will never be put to shame. In him, we can humbly and gratefully rest in God's mercy, God's merciful truths, confident that nothing can separate us from his name. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father and Sovereign God, this chapter humbles us before you. We are creature and you are creator. We are sinners and you are the Holy God. And except for your mercy, we deserve your judgment. Thank you that in your mercy you have worked in our lives, that you have chosen us to show mercy to. This is nothing of us all, it is only of you. And so we give you humble thanks. We thank you too for the confidence that we can have that if we look to Jesus, if we trust in him, we will never be put to shame. Please give us that confidence this week and give us too that longing for those around us who don't yet know you. Please work in their hearts that you might show their mercy too. We ask this in Jesus' name. <coughs>